So I may be recording this episode on Halloween, but it's not a Halloween episode because I'm going to post it the day after Halloween. And, you know, there's nothing really terrifying or scary about this episode. I want to do one. I want to do a Halloween-themed episode. I love Halloween. That's a plan for next year. Next year, expect a Halloween-themed episode. What's going to happen? I don't know. I have a year to get it together. (laughs) I've got no idea what I'll do for next year's Halloween episode. I only know we're going to do one. Or are we? No, we will. We will. I don't know what it's going to entail. Maybe I'll just be carving a pumpkin and interviewing Glenn Danzig. How about that? I'll bet he'd be into it. You know, just talking to Glenn Danzig about Sam Hain and the Misfits while carving a pumpkin on Halloween 2024. That's a good plan. Although I feel like Glenn Danzig would probably be a really normal guy. You expect him to be all horror and macabre and lugubrious and, you know, into really scary stuff. But I feel like he's probably a really normal guy. So, Glenn, do you like Halloween? He goes, yeah, I do. I, I appreciate what it does for the economy. <laughs> I'm like, what? Um, so, Glenn, your favorite horror movie? I, you know, I really am not a fan of horror. I just enjoy, like, uh, The Notebook. You ever see that one? <laughs> he might be the most disappointing Halloween guest ever. So let me look into that. I got a year, and I'll track my progress and check back in with you on Valentine's Day. So there's nothing scary about today's episode at all. Nothing scary about me. Nothing scary about my guest. Actually, there is something scary about my guest today. The scary thing about my guest is how talented they are. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. At the top of the world, no one around I can see everything But nothing makes a sound And I'm as weightless and aimless As the passing clouds Looking at a long way down Well, you took my hand of my guest today on the program, Kelly Hunt. Let me tell you a little bit about Kelly Hunt. Born in Memphis into a musical family, Kelly Hunt grew up listening to classical, folk, and Delta blues. Growing up, she sang in the choir and she played the piano, but it was the five-string banjo that stole her heart. 
The more time she spent with the instrument, the more she found that she was both a traditionalist and a modernist, blending old-time picking with her own brand of improvisation. After graduating from college, Kelly did what we all did, explored stuff. She explored farming, the visual arts, and French bread making, and then she settled in Kansas City and got to work on the songs that would make up her debut album, Even the Sparrow. Now, Even the Sparrow is a spellbinding debut, but don't take my word for it. It quickly garnered a nomination for the International Folk Music Award and was one of the most critically acclaimed albums of 2019. Her sophomore effort, Ozark Symphony, ups the ante and makes the case that Hunt might very well be one of the most magical forces in folk music. Summoning philosophy, poetry, and the legacies and stories of the American South, Ozark Symphony brings to mind Joni Mitchell, Walt Whitman, and Rhiannon Giddens. From the soaring glory of Top of the World to the gentle percussion of On the Bayou, Ozark Symphony is an instant classic. The songs are played with precision and finesse, and the lilting melodies and achingly beautiful hooks are emotionally exact. It's gorgeous work. Now, I've interviewed Jesse Mallon while he was running errands, Xavier Boyle from Tahiti 80 talked to me while he was on a date, and Kelly Hunt, well, she did the whole interview while on a swing. Seriously, the entire interview She's swinging away. So let's swing with her. Here's me and Kelly Hunt having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. swing is that what's going on oh yes i am am on a swing it's like one of my happy places this is at my aunt's house in kansas city um so if this there's a kind of like a water flowing water over there if that's bad for the sound i can move somewhere else no it's fantastic i've interviewed a lot of people no one's ever done it on a swing funny yeah i don't know moving when i talk uh helps focus my mind so it's better than walking around (laughs) there is something like really rhythmic to that kind of uh motion that is kind of kind of calming it it is for me for sure yeah (laughs) you strike me as a very this is i mean i don't know this i i just met you but you strike me from my my research on you as a very disciplined person is that Hmm. a, a fair characterization I don't think my family would probably describe me that way. I am about the things that I'm that I'm passionate about, I guess. I'm disciplined about a few things. Um yeah, maybe discipline takes a different shape for different people. I don't know. I feel like I've kind of I think I used to try to be disciplined about like creative things, and then I realized it just really kind of did me no good to sit down and for example like try to write every day if I wasn't in a writing headspace it was better for me to maybe read a book or go for a walk or listen to someone else's music or sort of like be inspired um and it didn't do me much good to like sit down and bang my head against a wall you know so I don't know I think I've maybe learned to be 
loose within my interpretation of discipline, but I still, I guess I am, I'm not a creature of habit, but I, but I do like pursue the things I love with determination, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I like the idea that if you aren't making art, you're taking in art to help you later make the art. Yeah. It's an important part of the cycle. I think of it that way. Like I spent some time farming, like in my, I got really into sort of, yeah, farming when I was in my early 20s. And so I think I still think of it very much with that image in mind of like crop rotation. Like sometimes you have to let the field lie fallow so it can regenerate and be more fertile when it does bear fruit again. You know, like that whole kind of cyclical nature of creativity uh, requires sometimes that you just rest and regroup <laughs> and, you know, restore the soil with some, with put I think that's like the time when I'll when I will kind of um just get the fodder just live and get have experiences and that's kind of the fodder for the creative things when it's that time again so yeah because the resting and the regrouping is actually part of that cycle exactly a really kind of indispensable part of that cycle like you'll just kind of wear the earth out to where it won't even produce anything anymore if you're just constantly trying to harvest you know, without restoring balance to it, then yeah, it'll just, it's not sustainable in the long term. So did your foray into farming, did that sort of help you with your approach to, to art? Cause there is a kind of, I would imagine farming is a require is a combination of discipline and patience. Absolutely. That's so true. Yeah, it really is. It's yeah. I think that was a very formative chapter in my life. Um, for a lot of reasons but yeah sort of the rhythm of nature and and that cycle and kind of embodying that in a way because when you're farming you are physically you know working with that cycle and so you kind of internalize it in a way and it's the cycle of the sun you know like your days are shorter uh in the winter so you're you know you're spending the time that you have in the sun to do that work but then it's more sort of going back and plotting out, you know, what the next year is going to be and sort of um, investing energy in a different direction versus the summer where we would be working for 10 to 12 hours because that's how long the sun was out. And so that kind of, yeah, push and pull and kind of going with that flow, I think is the most productive, you know, use of time rather than. So, yeah, I think that's for sure. And also just, um, I think it also, makes you adaptive because nature's full of surprises and like you never know what the crop is really going to be like until the season has happened and it's going to it's going to depend on a lot of things how much sun and rain and you know every year is different and you can it's it's always going to kind of require that you be on your toes and adapt to what's going on and I feel like that's very much uh, and then try to be resourceful with what you've got. If you've got a bumper crop of tomatoes and you can't sell them all before they all go bad, then you're going to get in the kitchen and turn that into salsas and stuff you can sell during the winter. You know, it's like this sort of mentality of just taking what you've, you're given and making the most of it. And I think that's very much the creative life and kind of the life of a touring musician, too, where you really are kind of as much as you plan things out, flying by the seat of your pants, pretty much, you know. And so I think that's a skill set that's really, um, it serves me well to kind of just challenge myself to be adaptive and to see all the things that go arise an opportunity for maybe a growth in an unexpected direction. Um, 
yeah, there's a million analogies there with the farming and the nature and all that. And I really draw a lot of inspiration from, from the natural world for sure. I imagine it also helped develop your pivot muscle. Mm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> pivot muscles getting stronger every year. I think. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's pivot muscles are a little stronger after COVID. Uh, yes. Especially, you know. We're all so pivoty now. <laughs> I think it's um, to our benefit. To our benefit, yes. Um, so getting into farming was after college? Yeah, a year or so after I graduated college. And I think I had just been in my head for so many years and kind of living in, in academia and, and very much in my brain. And, and I was just kind of craving being in my body and feeling just kind of vital in that sense. And... um so yeah, it was it was kind of that. It was also though like a, a genuine like interest in food and in in farming and then um ultimately that kind of led to like an interest in the culinary arts. So I was kind of doing both like the farming side of things and then the kitchen side of things. Um and yeah, it was just a very satisfying. I think I did that for just a few years. Um yeah, it was what I needed at the time to kind of shift gears out of basically being in school my whole life to just being a person in the world and occupying like a different kind of space. And I knew I didn't want to go to grad school. So it was kind of like just just kind of for the first time existing on my own outside of that complex of the academic world, you know, so I, I needed that shift. And that helped orient me and I think kind of really be receptive to music ultimately, which, you know, I, I grew up around and always had only known my, you know, every memory that I have of myself um, includes music to some degree. So it's like the thing that was always there, but it was never something I really had considered pursuing professionally. So I think that whole farming chapter and kind of just breaking out of my own mold helped open me up to ultimately kind of embrace that path um, as well. So, Well, it's kind of cool that you have your, you know, in the chapter of your life, you have the farming years. Not mm -hmm. a lot of people have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hope there are more farming years to come. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the farming years, the bread making years, French bread making was kind of became my thing after that. And then, yeah, then the sort of getting back into some of the visual arts, which was my background in school and, and doing some design stuff and kind of a brief uh, encounter with sort of a corporate <laughs> world, which I quickly learned was not a sustainable path for me as much as I enjoyed sort of the, you know, the, the nature of the work, just, um, you know, designing and copywriting and all sorts of creative things that I really kind of enjoyed. But yeah, then the music sort of uh was in the background through all of these things though it's kind of the thing that was what I turned to in my my off hours my hours of solitude and it was a very restorative like necessary part of my life but uh it kind of came to the surface on its own um over time so definitely a lot of chapters <laughs> yeah I I remember like and it wasn't even super corporate you know it was still like a a small business that I got to wear a lot of hats in, but then it kind of, you know, got bought by a bigger equity firm and became more increasingly corporate. And I remember just like 
the things I would do to cope with sitting at a desk, like I would have to take strategic uh, breaks and I would go, there's train tracks that went outside the, they were in the back of this warehouse and I'd go walk along the train tracks and I'd take like a 20 minute break and I'd be wor usually working on a song and I'd be making these like hurried little audio recordings on my phone to try to capture the kernel of whatever I was, whatever was kind of bubbling up. And then I'd go back into work and every couple hours I'd have to just leave the building. <laughs> and it became, you know, clear that I just couldn't keep, keep it up. But uh, yeah, I just think there's certain people that are um, just wired away where they just can't sit still that long. <laughs> I get it. I mean, yeah. I was, after college, I was teaching tennis at a country club and I'm a writer. And so I would, I'd be teaching kids like, you know, clinics. And then I'd say, oh, I'll be right back. And I would go to the clubhouse and scroll, you know, scribble down some notes for a poem. Uh -huh. and I did that. <laughs> I, it made the job more bearable. Like I could right. go back and go, I'm revived. I've got exactly. this secret little thing in my pocket that no one knows about. <laughs> exactly but it always feels like okay you're just getting through it you know it's like survival every day just doing what you got to do to get through it yeah it's funny yeah mm -hmm. so art is almost like this kind of coping mechanism uh that makes the real world more bearable I absolutely i think that's so true yeah and then i think you know i often think what would i do if i wasn't a creative you know I think about that because it's because to me that's sort of the lens through which I see everything so anything that happens to me even bad things you know is seen as like something I can use that's useful <laughs> you know but like I yeah I just I wonder I don't know um what I would do without the without that to turn to you know um because it does it makes life bearable all the hard parts <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It's a um, it's a terrifying thought to think of not having it. It really is. Yeah, it's a desolate thought. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe we'd just be really good at real estate or something. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I do think life would be simpler. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, I think there's a beautiful simplicity sometimes that I envy about people's lives that 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 are more, you know, uh that fit to that can fit to a kind of the nine to five life and you know I have for example my little sister who's a lawyer and I was home a couple months ago or something and she she was getting ready to leave for work and I was like baking a quiche or something <laughs> she was like you know there's not a day goes by I don't just envy you <laughs> and but then she also would not want the life that I have and knows that like she wouldn't want to be living on the road and it's not you know underneath it all it's a very kind of strange life it wouldn't at all work for her and her but and her life wouldn't at all work for me but we look at each other with some degree of like awe of like I don't know how you do what you do and yeah grass is always greener I guess but yeah it is interesting well the artistic life is it's terrifying to imagine a life without it but it's also a terrifying life to live because there's no 401k. There's no, I mean, exactly. there's a lot of things that nine exactly. have, right? Totally. What you sacrifice and sort of that stability and security and the, the comfort of like what is known and predictable, <laughs> you know, you sacrifice that in pursuit of something that's, you know, so adventurous and so full of, it's so vibrant. And so I feel, you know, 
oftentimes like I'm just living right on the edge of life, you know, like it's unfolding and I'm, I'm flowing with it as it unfolds. And there's such a sense of like, um, into it's such an integrated way of living where your work and your life are kind of all mixed together to where you couldn't even separate them if you tried. And so that makes it kind of messy and complicated in a way. Uh, but also kind of just amazing that, yeah, we get to experience life so fully and at, at a different frequency than I think a lot of people because of that. So it's a give and take for sure. Yeah, because I think that if you did a nine to five, it would, I mean, maybe be financially rewarding or whatever, but it wouldn't right. be spiritually satisfying. And I think that unhappiness is not worth, it's not worth the risk. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that's kind of, you know, there were those years in in my early early to mid 20s, I think, when I was really, I, I just remember this feeling so keenly of being just incredibly restless and, and everything that I kind of tried on, I'd, I'd move every, every, it was, it was like clockwork every year. I would just have to move and try something else. And I just kept kind of like going through different jobs and different things, trying to find that thing that would stick and just feeling so kind of confused and, and, and miserable and restless. And I think once, you know, I latched onto music um things got psychologically so much easier for me because even though there were all these other question marks that I didn't have you know the study I wasn't employed by someone else to where that makes you know you know what you're gonna what you're gonna get and you your taxes are so easy to do and all these things <laughs> but but then it was like I suddenly felt this like a, a psychological release of oh okay no matter how hard this is I feel like I'm not confused anymore. You know, like I know exactly what I know exactly what I'm trying to do here and what I need, what I need to do. And now it's just a matter of figuring out how to do it, you know, and I would much rather be in that place and figure out how to navigate all the challenges and logistical kind of things surrounding that than feel lost and without purpose. But you, you seem like, so you're, like you're so open to things, whether it's moving around or baking or farming or um, you, you seem like you let all the light in, right? And then mm. you, you're willing to sort of strike matches and see what takes. And <laughs> that seems like a really good thing to have for your artistic practice too. Mm. I love that thought. Yeah, I think a lot of it really is being kind of open to experimenting and, and kind of, um, and that takes courage too you know that I constantly have to kind of challenge myself to do that though because I think for example like with this new record and it's my second so I had just had the one before but the one before kind of you know has such a special place in my heart because it was my first one and it was so kind of homespun and and that um sort of my origin point you know in a lot of ways and then you think, okay, every time you do something new, I feel like it kind of, I have to talk myself through that. Like, okay, it's going to be different. It maybe is going to reach in a different direction. Maybe not everyone who loved your first record will love your second record as much, or everyone's going to kind of have different feelings about these things, but you have a responsibility as an artist to, to just 
to be authentic in that process and to go where the spirit's leading you, uh, regardless of who follows you there. And I think that that is the part that really takes, takes courage is to say, okay, this is where I feel like going. And so let the chips fall where they may, I'm going to give this a shot. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think as long as that's your lodestar and you, you are kind of following that voice, then you know, you're going to end up somewhere meaningful and you're going to keep growing as an artist. And I look at my favorite artists, visual artists, you know, musicians, writers, they kind of have these phases in the course of their, you know, their creative life where there is a, there is an evolution. There's, there are these sort of, um, you see that questing, that creative questing at work. And it's so exciting to observe you know, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to that. Just being open. I love that you have realized that by record number two, because some people, they sort of decide by record six or seven, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some turns and see what happens. But um, there's a nervousness to do that in the first couple of albums. And I think, sure. right, like it's your stuff and you get to, you get to make those turns. And I like that you're thinking about your, your future discography as a kind of narrative that's, mm. you know, um, indicating your own um, uh, directions that you may go. I mean, mm -hmm. because who knows, right. In terms of what you'll be listening to or thinking about. And exactly. Uh, I think that's so cool. Hmm. Well, I'm sure it's, you know, the same way with poetry and writing and kind of, yeah, different things in life and different moments kind of draws you in one direction or another. Or sometimes, you know, it's, I feel like right now I kind of, I'm realizing how long it takes to make a record and to really, you know, because my first one took years for me to make, but it was my first one. This one, you know, I recorded in 2020, most of it, and it's just now coming out. So I'm realizing like the gestation period of a record is pretty, it's pretty long. Yeah. And um, that, you know, at least for me, that has proven the case. And so I think I'm kind of at a point now where because I do write a lot and I, I have a lot of different things I want to do. And I can think of like three different records I'd love to make right now. You know, and so then that is kind of another part of balancing the creative life is kind of realizing that you're being pulled in all these different directions and kind of developing that skill to be able to hone in on what is the most urgent thing to do now. Like, what is the project that's asserting itself as like it feels the most of the moment? It's resonating with you in the present moment in a way that's going to like that you can stay with for the next three years. You know, right. like what is the story you've got to tell right now? And then those other stories, you know, will have maybe have their moment down the road, but like, what is that one thing focusing? And that sort of has, uh, that's a challenge for me, the focusing part, but it's so important because until you can kind of hone in on that uh, one thing that you're gonna do, then it's really easy to never do anything. <laughs> right. Well, it's also for you as an artist, because I think you're promoting a new album, which is, by the way, is marvelous and so oh, lovely. Thank you. Um, I just love it. And it's an album that, you know, for you, we're almost four years later in terms of, right, we're almost at 2024. 
Right. Uh, emotionally, I would imagine you're you have another series of songs like you're talking about. So you have to sort of like, but obviously you're passionate and you love the album and you're excited to talk about it. But I would imagine the new work is capturing your heart, you know, like exactly right. So you're in right. two different places at once. Exactly. No, that is that is a very good point. And then that is another kind of challenge I feel like of yeah, of being a a working artist probably in any medium, but that you're always kind of playing catch up with yourself um, or having to like go back, you know, like from right. where you are now, go back in time to play the stuff that was really present to you then. And that's what you've got to work now because it's the record that's coming out. But, you know, also like planning tours, you know, you're looking at six months down the road. I feel like I never really know what season it is when I'm, you know, I'm like, what time you're because when it's summer, you're thinking about, you know, next you're thinking about winter and spring and planning all that stuff. And by the time those times come around, it's just it's a very kind of time and space and time get all mixed around and kind of become abstracted. But um, I don't know. I think also I enjoy playing, you know, my my older songs and. I like, you know, lately it's been album release kind of shows. So I've been playing the record from start to finish, which I really had never done before and probably won't do again. Mm. Um, you know, I'll probably intersperse songs from this record with new stuff and with old right. stuff, which is really kind of my favorite way to to build a set is by drawing on, you know, different parts of my creative development. But yeah, it is. I do feel like this record is very much kind of a moment in time. Um, although it spans like songs that I wrote probably I'm trying to think what the oldest song on there, probably, you know, eight years ago to songs that I wrote the week before uh, a song that I wrote the week before we went into the studio to make the record wow. that just kind of happened. And so we went with it and it, it fit. So, uh, you know, there's this, there's, something to be said for that 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 eight-year span you know within that there's a narrative that feels of one moment to me I don't know who it was I think it was David Lee Roth or Eddie Van Halen or maybe it was Shakespeare I don't know <laughs> but they said you have your whole life to make your first album and you have a hmm. year to make your second and oh right sure sure that's that's a great point yeah no, I think there is kind of um before you've made your first record, you're just a dark horse. Nobody has any expectations of you. Right. So you could yeah, of all the freedom in the world to just uh be what you are. And and I think, you know, that's why a lot of times and this is not always true, but why a lot of times I think the early works of an artist do have a certain aura about them because they're probably the least self-conscious. Right. You know, and I, I, I was thinking about this the other day because someone was asking me about, you know, some of the, st the stories behind the songs on this record and like where, you know, where I was when I wrote this one, what, where did this one come from? Did it come quickly? Did it come slowly? You know, and I was thinking about it and I, I kind of had an answer for all the songs on this record a memory of how they were how they came to be and what my experience of that 
was. But with my first record, I hardly have any memories of how those songs came to be. You know, there's scattered moments where I remember, but most of it's just kind of a mystery to me. Like, I know I wrote them and I know generally what sort of period of my life I was in. So where I was, but like, I don't have a recollection of like constructing that second verse or writing that bridge or it was just not, I wasn't self-conscious about it. I was creating from a very free, spontaneous place. And I think that is the challenge as you continue to create uh, is to kind of, you can't go back there per se, but to cultivate a state of mind that is free as it can possibly be. And that isn't contrived, that isn't calculating what is the, you know, what do people want to hear? What's trending, trending, (laughs) you know, not to try to like, right to a standard of any kind other than just what feels right and and in service of the song and 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 honest what feels honest and true and kind of um I, i think it does though get harder to access that place mentally maybe the more you you do it and the more people have expectations or or sort of an idea of what who you are as an artist or what your brand is, you know, right. it can get harder to not think about those things. <laughs> well, yeah, because, and also it's dangerous if you hear somebody say, like, let's say someone from Rolling Stone says, oh, nobody does these kinds of songs better than Kelly. Right. Then, then you're like, oh, <laughs> more of those, I guess. I mean, <laughs> Like, it's like, even though it's praise, like, I remember years, this is like 30 years ago, I was in a poetry class, I think it was in graduate school, and this woman said to me, I love how you refer to things in threes, hmm. but this, but this, but this, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize I did that. 30 <laughs> years later, every time I do something in threes, I go, there I go again with the three thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's certain things you can't unhear, they just kind of become right. part of consciousness, yeah. I still think about that. And I think, no, I think I was actually 19 at the time. Um, and all so these fun. years later, it's like, oh, I'm still doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, you know, you know, she t- meant it positively. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a defining, it was, it was a sort of like a quirk or something that you unwittingly possess, you know, I think there, there are certainly things like that. Um, you know, I think once I started playing with, uh, a fiddler or with violinist Stash, who co-produced my first record with me and still tours with me a lot and he was like you know you always emphasize the offbeat this was like a couple of years into our playing together I had never thought about it it's just I live on the offbeat and even when I'm li- with when I'm listening to other people's music I'm tapping on the off there's something about the offbeat that's just my internal rhythm I'm on the offbeat and it's, it hasn't changed, but I'm also aware of it now in a way that I wasn't before. Right. But yeah, certain things that, you know, uh, I think that's another thing is there's a fine line. Some, some things are better off left unexamined. I agree. Because there's just a beauty and a mystery and a sort of purity in something that's just is what it is and isn't dissected a hundred different ways. and. So I kind of try to protect a little bit of that too with music where I've never been like a very theory driven musician. Um, 
which, you know, I like Stosh, for example, is a very theory driven musician. He's very classically trained. He and I experienced music in polar opposite ways. Like I remember it blowing my mind when we first talked about this, but he experiences music very mathematically. Like when he listens to a song, he's thinking about the mathematical relationships between the harmonics and the time signatures. It's like numbers are flying around in his brain. And so he doesn't even listen to music, which also blew my mind. He's a musician, but he doesn't really listen to music because it's exhausting for him. It's an intellectual thing that he he can't, it has a really hard time turning that off and enjoying it just for what it is. Whereas for me, it's very much, you know, I relax and it's, it's from an, it's from the inside out. It's, it's something I'm feeling and I'm intuiting. I'm not really thinking about it. And I don't want to get to a place where I'm thinking about it too much Right. Because me and the type of writing that I do, like that's that's just a surefire way for me to start overthinking things and for things to start sounding, you know, it can get out of hand really quickly, I think. So it's that yeah. balance of like knowing um, what you're what you're doing and being able to articulate that to a band and like communicate a vision um, in a shared vocabulary with other musicians, but also kind of know where those boundaries are of. You know, I, I give the musicians that I play with a lot of leeway to kind of just do what they're feeling. <laughs> what does the song make you want to do, you know, and then kind of start there. <laughs> and that's just the sweet spot for me. And where the magic happens is when they're able to be creative and bring their creativity to the creative thing I'm presenting. And then that's really how this record was made, too, because Dirk, as a producer, Dirk Powell, he's very much that's his modus operandi, like he. He uh, sort of curates a group of studio musicians who he thinks, who he knows really well and who he knows they have, you know, that they're going to be a good fit for the music. And then he, you know, they have the music and they're re they've rehearsed it. They know, uh, you know, they've got their charts. They know what they're doing, but they've also haven't really been coached. Mm. So that's, you know, very much the spirit of this record is everybody bringing sort of their own uh, personality and, and creativity to the table, which I think is just beautiful. Sitting on the banks of the bank, resting's on party bricks, having a long night, down, lost in the shovel of the weekend crowd, but that spell wears off.
album is that it feels like such a specific song cycle um mm. and it feels so it's so precise and it feels like almost novelistic in the way mm. that there's a beginning a middle and an end um mm. to to borrow an idea from bread making and then i'm yeah. gonna ask you about songwriting um, okay if you were there times where you made bread and you were like this is gonna be great and you took it out of the oven and you went this has to be thrown away did that ever happen <laughs> question I think I I'm sure that happened you know the thing that I the things that I am passionate about in my life and have been historically um like from college to from like I did sort of early 19th century or late 1800s early 1900s photography like in the dark room and and making photographs on glass plates and like the chemical baths and these strange things would happen that you could never predict like there'd be like these you know little flecks of of uh like metallic sort of light that would end up on the picture or there'd be like a swirl where the picture gets distorted in one spot or things that you could never get a you know i never got a perfect image it was always marked by the process itself in a way that I couldn't predict and I loved that it was just like it kind of um it was my favorite part was knowing that I was kind of interacting with this alchemy of some kind that was gonna I was felt it felt like a collaboration but I could never repeat something I'd done exactly the same way or predict what was going to happen and with bread making it's the same thing um because bread like banjos really are like constantly responding to their physical environment. So depending on the humidity of the room, uh, what time of year, the temperature of the room, the, the temperature of your hands, you know, the, that it's, it's constantly responding to its environment. So all you can do is kind of meet it where it is and learn how to kind of look at it and say, okay, you know, the, two hour proofing time is up, but you're still not ready. So you don't look, you know, you haven't risen enough. So I'm going to give it another 30 minutes. And you learn to kind of develop this gut instinct about when things, when it's time, because the science isn't going to serve you to a T, you know, you can't right. stick it 
clock. It's not, it's every time is different. And it's the same thing with a banjo that's constantly contracting and expanding as my body's heating up and as people enter the room and the room's getting warmer, like I'm having to tune a lot to, to keep up with it, but it is like this constant kind of chase. And I think there's something really exciting about that and that makes you very in tune because you have to be in tune in order to kind of um, get a good result. And so, yeah, I think in general, I am kind of drawn to the things that require that kind of presence. Um, maybe because it forces me to be present and, and it's hard for me to be present. I don't know. Maybe I, I recognize that those sorts of things, they they force me into a headspace that's good for me and that I like to be in. Um, but you have to be an active participant. I don't know right. if that at all. I can't even remember what your first question was. Oh, the bread. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I was asking because I was trying to, you said it so much better, but I was getting at the idea that, because you might as well be talking about songwriting too, right? Sure, exactly. The unpredictability. Um, right. The idea that like you can, sometimes you can overcook a lyric, or, right? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, who is it that said that the lyric you love the most is probably the one you should get rid of? I can't remember. But yeah. the idea becomes so precious and so like um about you, you know, and you're sort of but that it and so dialed into your it can be so specific that then it's not universal. Yeah. You know, like it can be so much about you that no one else can relate to it. And I think finding those sort of that balance between specificity and universality to where there's something to latch onto a detail that's a juicy detail that's going to be memorable but that also can filter through everyone's experience of something and they can relate to it you know but yeah i think a record is the same way like um in my experience so far which it's only two records but i feel like both times i kind of went into the studio maybe i think the first record i went into the studio recognizing that i had no idea what the record was going to be mm. you know like there were maybe a couple songs that i knew went on there but i recorded way more songs probably two albums worth of songs and then distilled it down into one i think with the second album i thought i knew what it was going to be going in and it ended up uh you know, I think about our first meeting about the record with Dirk, like, and kind of brainstorming the arc of the album. I think the arc um, is what I originally, you know, envisioned, but sort of the different points along that arc are different. There were songs on there I didn't plan to have on there. There's songs that I thought for sure would be on the record that didn't make the cut. And so I think it's also being open to, you know, some of that is because, you know, maybe things just never really came together in the studio to where, it, the magic happened like it felt like like a couple songs maybe never they weren't fully baked yet <laughs> you know like right. so I save that for another record because it's just it's not coming together and we've spent enough time on it and there's other things that are coming together so let's go with the ones that seem to be fully formed and like presenting themselves as a mature ready thing and then within those it's kind of figuring out which ones of these are working together are fitting together are are sort of um and important they're building that narrative in a way that that is you know that that flows the way you want it to and that they kind of i think of it in terms of a balance of a lot of things but like you know it can be that you just need that song at a certain tempo that's going to bring levity at that moment where you've just gone to kind of a heavy place and you need something that's going to bring you out of that and build a bridge to 
you know, the rollicking good time of a song, you know, <laughs> like right. there's just all these things that like just building a record and constructing the arc of a record is in and of itself, like such an um, art form and, and, and took a lot of time with this album. Uh, it was kind of like a down to the wire thing, certain songs like this or that kind of exercises, you know, which one, <laughs> but yeah, it feels right to me now. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm always glad that I've taken the time um, to get it to a place that with both of these records, I feel like because they took so long to make, um, I really don't have any regrets about them, you know? And that's kind of my, my goal for my career <laughs> is that to like make every record, give it the time it needs. And it's probably longer than you want it to be, <laughs> but you have to live with it the rest of your life and stand behind it. And uh, I, I want to be happy to do that, you know, not feel like if only <laughs> I'd, I'd given it a little more time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, though farming and bread making and songwriting seem like all different disciplines, it seems to me that the through line is the thrill of pulling the tomato from the earth, the bread from the <laughs> oven, the song yeah. from the ether, and not knowing, not knowing what you're going to get. Exactly. Exactly. That is, that's it. And that sort of, yeah, spirit of just of su the element of surprise and never losing also like a sense of wonder and awe, you know, about the creative, about the creative process. And like, I feel you know, there's this, uh, there was this one kind of chapter, was this like maybe a couple of years ago? Um, I was having a really hard time bringing out new stuff. I think it was the same sort of thing that we were talking about. Like I was just meeting a lot of inner resistance to bringing out new songs and I felt like they were different and I didn't really know what to make of them. And um, but also feeling that way about writing, like every, when I'd finish a song, I'd kind of get blue and I would think, you know, like, that's probably the last song I'll ever write. Like, you know, I, I don't know how to write songs, <laughs> like the sense of like, you know, and that there is an element. Uh, and then I think there've been other times when I was trying so hard to write songs and I'd get frustrated, you know, if, if it didn't happen and, and kind of just work myself up and, I think really it is a gift every time you write a poem that you really love and that you feel like um, is there's a purity to it and that it feels like, you know, it's, it's a gift and that it's not something you can just do whenever you want. You can't write the really great ones just whenever you want. Like you can kind of cultivate that the skills and the headspace and and be receptive to it when it comes but at the end of the day a great piece of art of any kind is something that is beyond you that you you that you participated in and it you know you're part of it but it's more than you <laughs> and so I think you know just never losing I don't ever want to lose that sense of like when I do write a song that I like, you know, just that feeling of, it's like a blessing that. Yeah. And you sort of get what you get and you, and you kind of like, when you re reach your hand into the ether and you pull something out, um, it's, 
you don't know what it's going to be, exactly. right? For that moment in time, uh, you have to just take what you what you've got. Exactly, and you figure know. out what to do with it later. You know, as you right. go. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Maybe not every time you reach into the ether and pull something out, is it something that's going to become a fully formed thing? Like, I think a lot of times it's just like a breadcrumb on the trail to that great thing. And there have been songs that I kind of, you know, started and never finished, but then they became sort of the cell of another song or the, you know, the seed that gave rise to another song sometimes years later. But it was just like, that was just a little seed. But if I hadn't gotten the seed, then that song would later would never have been written. You know, I, th I think this is why I keep my voice recordings and all this stuff. This just happened with a song the other day that I just was looking through my voice recordings from years. It was probably five years ago. And this, the name of the voice memo kind of stood out to me and I listened to it. And it was some little tune that I'd kind of, it had, and I, that I have had since totally forgotten. And then driving along, listening to that, it kind of sparked a new, new words and a new sort of song that was born of that core melody, you know, things like that, where it's, it's not wasted. And even if you never turn it into something that's recorded, it's, it's just keeps the fires burning, you yeah. know, and some that's enough just to keep the fire burning so that you can, you know, do the great thing later on. That's right. In terms of your practicing um do you practice banjo every day do you are there days where you don't pick it up and feel weird about not picking it up or like my impulse is to pick up an instrument every day if i don't then there's not a day that goes by that i'm not singing to myself you know or kind of that music isn't happening in me in some way but there have certainly been times when, you know, and I think especially like being at a phase in my career where I'm still a developing artist and I'm booking myself and I'm trying to just, you know, get myself down the road and get the work to keep going. And, and that that's such a big part of my sort of time and energy right now that I think there are days where I'm just so deep in my left brain with spreadsheets and Google Maps and trying to fit together tour routes and figure out which venues, <laughs> cities host things on which nights of the week. And, you know, it's like it, I, ha I have to go so deep in there sometimes that that it's just I don't have enough time to extract myself from that at the end of the day i just need to kind of recover i don't have anything left you know my my serving the music that day that's what it looked like mm. you know was just getting trying to get the dates on the calendar and i think you know but a lot of times on those days i'll i'll take breaks and 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 my break from that is you know picking up an instrument or uh just for the heck of it not even trying to work just to kind of you know, get outside of my mind. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's guitar. That's the interesting thing too, is that now, you know, I do the tenor banjo and the five string banjo and, and guitars become more and more a part of my writing. Um, especially for the next record, I think I've just really, uh, someone gave me a beautiful guitar, like right as COVID was kind of hitting and, that was 
life-changing for me because then I pretty much hold up with that instrument for a couple of years. Right. And yeah, open D, just the open D tuning for some reason that just ignited so many songs for me. And uh, so, yeah, some, now the, now the question I ask myself is, you know, usually I'll start writing a song in my head, like a melody and words in my head. And then I'll think, okay, which instrument does this belong on? You know, and then once I figure out what instrument I think it belongs on, what tuning does it belong in? Because I'm, you know, playing with a lot of different tunings now. So it's kind of like this treasure hunt of you trial and error till you find, oh, yes, this is it. It's got to be, this is where it lives. And um, so some days, you know, I'll find myself like this morning, I woke up and I really wanted to play my five string banjo. So that's what I did. And I was claw hammering. And that's just what I was feeling. But there's other mornings I'll wake up and I'll be like, I'm feeling like guitar this morning. So I think a little bit calmer, quieter. Um, so yeah, I kind of, uh, I'm not really very disciplined when it comes to practicing. And I think uh, that my approach to developing technique is really shaped by the songs I'm writing. So a lot of times like um, I'll, I'll write a song and I won't, I'll have in my mind what I want it to sound like. And then I'll realize I don't actually have the technique to be able to do this. Mm. So then that will drive my pursuit of technique is like, okay, I need to figure out how to execute this sound in service of the song. So, you know, that, that, and then it's, then I'll really hone in on that and I'll practice it a lot. Um, but it tends to be kind of inspired by whatever I'm working on at the time. And that's what sort of informs what technique I'm going to work on. But yeah, I think if I had more time, like that, I wasn't booking and doing all that stuff, I think I'd really be focusing on, um, on practicing my instruments and kind of, you know, I'd love to, I don't really, I've never really played rhythm guitar. I think that's, you know, that's something I'd love to learn how to do. It's just, um, or different, yeah, different banjo techniques. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. interesting to hear how you're describing how your sonic palette is widening. It's probably the most organic description I've ever heard. Because mm. um, it's like you're almost like you're adding and expanding this in this mm. really kind of beautiful, natural way. Um, and I think that also, you know, that you're sort of, you know, rhythm guitar curious, or maybe that there's there's a kind of curiosity about other instruments as well. Um, sure. suggest that that who knows where you're gonna go with this yeah. right yeah I have my first fiddle lesson on Sunday what <laughs> no I got I just inherited my great aunt's violin and I got it all you know set up and um, I'm gonna have my first lesson which is funny because when I the only instrument I've ever like been sleeping and dreaming about playing is a violin and I've never played the violin so it's always an instrument. I feel like though I have a, a, um, I feel like I understand that instrument just because it's, I, I think of it the same way I think of a voice, you know, it's like a fretless string instrument that is very melodic and that, you know, a lot of times I'll, for a lot of these songs, like I've written a violin part that I never actually have played, but that's like, I'll hear the melody in my mind. It's like, this is what it is, but I've never actually executed that melody so it's interesting I'll yeah I, and I think you know that's the other thing is 
to uh, just, I think having that sort of playful curiosity about things keeps it feeling fun and like you're constantly discovering something and also that you're uncomfortable, like that there's always room for growth, that there's always something new to kind of, so that you don't feel stale because I think there's a lot about the creative life that is kind of combating being in a rut or you know being on a on a, a tour cycle where you're these are the songs you really need to play because you're promoting this thing like right. it's kind of like yes your scenery is changing you're in a different town and a different venue there's different people in the room but like what you're doing on stage can start to feel a little or the stories you're telling between the songs the stories aren't changing they are what they are so it's like it can kind of start to feel a little a little stale and so ways to kind of just keep breathing fresh air into things and getting new perspectives and because it is a very vital thing it should feel vital and um but it takes a little bit of like intention i think to keep it feeling that way sometimes but yeah, there's a lot to oh. learn. Always a lot to learn. Do you feel when you're when you're on the road, do you feel um the creative impulse is in the same way that you're saying that like when you're baking the temperature of your hands or the room or right? Do you feel that when you're on the road that the temperature of the road is more mm. or less conducive to to writing or 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 does it depend on where you are and and how you're feeling? Yeah, I remember before I ever toured and I'd listen to podcasts, you know, like like this one and like um I don't know if you've heard uh Joe Pug's working songwriter podcast. Yeah. You know, That's but great. like listening to stuff like that before I had really experienced the pace of tour and and a lot of them I noticed said that when they're on the road like they really don't write very much. And that shocked me. I was like, what? But like, I feel like it'd be so inspiring and, and the juices would really be flowing because you're kind of going through all these new places and having all these experiences. And then once I started touring, I think I understood what, what why that is the case a lot of times is because um, there's just simply not the time to like be in in that part of the brain. Like, I think for me also, when I'm writing, I really need to be in solitude. That's just indispensable to my being creative because I will feel self-conscious if there's someone else there, even just within earshot, I'll feel self-conscious and, and it will kind of ruin the vibe for me. I just can't access that place if I feel like other people can hear me or are aware of me. And so that is pretty much that's a hard thing to get over being on the road you know especially you're touring with other people I think the other thing is I have to feel safe um because you're really bringing your guard down in a real way right like you are you're kind of going into an inner room or something in your mind and in your your being like where everything around you is fades away and you're you're going into this kind of different rarefied space and in order for me to do that and to really let go and go there I have to feel like my environment like I don't need to be looking over my shoulder I don't need to be 
and I think it's hard to find that place when you're on the road and you're in a foreign place and you don't know exactly, you know, it's like all these things, you're in a hotel or you're in somebody else's house or you're, you know, so it's harder to find truly just the right kind of space, I think. But I do think the beauty of it and the part that is very inspiring is just, um, you know, just, you know, the experiences that you have, the encounters, there's something so amazing about tour like meeting all these people that you would never your paths would never have crossed with before and right. it's people from all you know walks of life and it's it's not just when you're playing a show and the people that are at your show but it's you know sitting at the diner having dinner and it's you know whatever encounters you have along the way and there always are you know so many characters you meet and people's who, stories who they tell you you know and you then carry those with you and kind of I feel like it's collecting a lot of uh, fodder, you know, for things down the road, but you're not, I'm not really in the place then and there to write a song about it, but I'm kind of gathering the data or whatever right. to make something of maybe later. I'm I'm kind of internalizing it and living it. And so it is, it's factoring in for sure. And there's something about being on tour that that does also make you feel like, okay, I'm doing it. Like you're in the flow of, of the work. And so it is revitalizing to feel, you know, a lot of times in those phases where I'm booking or I'm behind the screen and I'm kind of plotting things out, you can feel so far removed from the actual thing. And then when you're actually in the mix and you're making the music and you're present to it in that way and you're you're having these encounters with other people that the music brought you together, you feel very in it and that is a very creatively re-energizing kind of place to be. So it factors in for sure. But, uh, you know, and then the tours where and I have that I've done solo, I've written songs because I'm on the road, I'm by myself in the car and then things happen. But really, that's rare. Well, also, <laughs> I love your attitude because some people will say that being on the road, meeting all those characters, their bandwidth gets depleted. Mm. Um, and it seems like it's having an opposite effect for you. You're almost collecting and it's exciting to, to meet people and talk to people and eat a weird meal in a diner and <laughs> right? yeah. like, who knows, um, yeah. you know, stay at a strange motel, but it's all part of the experience. And it doesn't seem like it is depleting your bandwidth. If anything, it almost feels like it's making you stronger. Yeah, I think that's true. I think on the other hand, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty, at my heart, a pretty introverted person. So I think there is a socially exhausting aspect to being on the road in the sense that, you know, you're giving it your all on stage, and then you're, you're giving it your all when you are off stage. And, you, and I feel just a genuine gratitude, you know, for people who come to show. So I want to meet them. I want to let them know that I appreciate it being there. I yeah. want to see their faces. Like I want to, I want to, I feel like they're giving me something by, by being there and, and I'm giving something of myself on stage, but I want to give something of myself personally too. It's so it's kind of this, you know, it's, it's a part that's both fulfilling and also does take a lot of energy. And I feel like I sleep really well, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. Um, and then you have, you know, I think it's, I've also learned a little bit just doing some tours. I've learned over the course of those, how to kind of carve out moments of solitude and, 
I'm an early riser. So that's kind of my time usually is before the day gets going, you know, to get up and go off on my own and, and uh, have some just quiet time to kind of start the day with a book or a walk or just sitting in a coffee shop or something. And that, that is enough to kind of um, be a touchstone to where I can just kind of have start the day from that place, then, then it's usually a good day, you know? Uh, so yeah, that is a discipline that I really do try to keep on the road because I know that I need it to keep the pace. It's a way of staying. Cause some people say I go on the road and I have to make sure that I jump rope or take a run or something, but this is also mm. a way of keeping the creative mind healthy active safe right exactly well fed you know just keeping it exactly going. yep yeah that's exactly it um yeah i think that what i love about what you do is the the precision of your work is you don't sound like someone on their second album you sound like you've been mm -hmm. doing this your whole life um the the album closer is mm -hmm. uh, stone cold killer um ah. and, and to me to my ear to this critic critic's ear i would think well that was the obvious album closer just out of curiosity did that song assert itself as the end piece or was it floating around in the sequence that's a good question i don't remember that one specifically asserting itself as the closer um you know in fact it was kind of towards the end that we, I think I kind of always had it in mind for the album, but I don't remember it being, you know, the obvious closer. Um, and in fact, I put it down solo, just me. And then I really just wanted like sister voices, you know, I, I just wanted that kind of sisterhood of voices. And so Dirk's daughter, Amelia, and Rachel Sermani, who's one of my favorite singers, she's a Scottish singer put down harmonies and it was just exactly right to my ear like yes this is this is the feeling that I want this song to to give me and then Dirk did a super cool thing because um when we first met with him in Petty Jean State Park in Arkansas to talk about kind of brainstorm the record and play through some of the stuff and just initially start generating some ideas um we we took this walk at dusk down through the park and there's these big turtle rocks. They're like, they look like giant turtlebacks, but they're just huge rocks up on this crest, kind of looking out over the trees. And you go down through the woods and into this cave. It's just like a giant <laughs> wide mouthed cave. And so we walked in there and the acoustics are just amazing because it's just dirt floor and rock walls. And so we went to the very back of the cave and Dirk said, okay, everybody give me your phones. And he set up all of our phones in a semicircle around me. And he said, okay, sing something. And that was just the song that kind of popped into my head. And so that's the one that I sang. And I still don't know if he had plans in that moment to use it, but fast forward um, several months when we were in the studio and I laid down that acapella track of that song uh, I went back into the booth and he was queuing up. He had condensed all those cell phone recordings down into one and he was queuing it up to the end of the track. 
And I had no idea what he was doing until he played it and I heard the crickets come in and it dawned on me. And then I heard my voice and the reverb of the cave and everything. It dawned on me that he had stitched it onto the back of the track. And that to me was just such a stroke of genius because that's really, the, that's an Ozark symphony, right? It's all the sounds of the Ozarks, just primary source, you know, it's just the right. pure unadulterated sound of the Ozarks at night. And to me, that's like the visual, that's the picture in my mind that I have with that song. And so it's just, uh, it was kind of this beautiful, I think once that happened, it was clear that that had to be the last track. And also because it ended just with the sound of the Ozarks and then it loops back into Ozark Symphony, the first track. And that kind of full circle and to go from what is maybe the fullest track on the album, which is the first one, to yeah. the sparsest track being the last one it just it felt like it came full circle with that orientation of things and once we listened to it that way it was like there's no way it could be any other way you know <laughs> but it was kind of like a I feel like it was one of those things we followed to that conclusion it, I don't think it wasn't planned from the get-go it was one of those beautiful little twists along the way um and yeah just Dirk thinking outside the box you know, and it's gorgeous. It's the album yeah. closer of the year. <laughs> so glad you feel that way. Yeah. You know, um, just crickets and night sounds. <laughs> have you ever heard uh, Michelle Shock's Texas Campfire tapes? No, that sounds like something I would love. You know, you would. Um, she, when this is back in like, I think like 86 or 87, like she was the, the story goes, she was playing at a like a campfire in Texas, some some guy hit record, so you can hear you can hear the night, um, wow. and you know she turned into a strange character. But at the time, <laughs> it was just like, holy cow! So anyway, it made me think a little bit of that. So it's totally worth checking out. It's a beautiful oh, album. Well, that's we've got some road time coming up. I'm gonna there you go. So we, uh, I, by the way, I think we have a title for your autobiography. When you write it a couple of years, it's going to be "I Live on the Offbeat." That's kind of be. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so great! I will credit you with that. <laughs> um, oh, that's you, so um, funny. You stayed on the swing the whole time we talked. Yeah, I'm still on the swing. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, uh, I'm so happy that we got a chance to talk and I love the album so much. Um, I just think you are remarkable and it's real fun to talk to you about the creative process. Thank you for, for going all over the place with me. Likewise, Alex. I so enjoyed this. Really fun. <laughs> Thank um, you. You'll come back on? Oh, of course. Okay. Twist Good. my arm. Congratulations on a beautiful album. Thank you, Alex. There you go kelly hunt she's the best i just think she's so great her album's amazing she's lovely go to her website buy some stickers some posters a t-shirt buy the album ozark symphony go there now kellyhuntmusic.com and have some fun buying gifts for everyone you love for 
I don't know, Christmas, I guess. That's the lowest hanging fruit holiday coming up. Or maybe not even a holiday. Maybe just because you care about people and you want to spread the word about wonderful music. I mean, there doesn't have to be a holiday to buy somebody music. I think you should do it every day. Every day, we should buy music for people we care about. I think we should buy music for people we don't even care about that much. And maybe, you know, that's an entry point in to everybody caring about each other. I don't know what I'm talking about. The point is, kellyhuntmusic.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with Kelly. Buy her music. Buy her merch. Support her. She's amazing. Bombshellradio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. You can find me on what's left of Twitter, at Embers Editor, or on Instagram, at Embers Podcast, or email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you feel most comfortable with, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. The order in which you do those things, by the way, not important. Just that you do them. That's the important thing. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Top of the World by Kelly Hunt. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for supporting us here at Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. At the top of the world, no one around. I can see everything, but nothing makes a sound. And I'm as weightless and aimless as the passing clouds. Looking at a long way. You said what comes around